Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, Stephen and I discuss the prospect of a government of national unity. You ask us how no deal Brexit will affect our everyday lives. And I speak to Emily Bootle about whether the comedy panel show has had its day. So welcome back from Croatia. Thank you. While you were gone, a particularly silly bout of summer stories has hit Westminster. There is a new plan in heavy inverted commas around the word plan and indeed around the word new to stop a no deal Brexit, which is to form a caretaker government. That's the phrase Jeremy Corbyn prefers, an emergency government. That's the phrase that Joe Swinson has been using or a government of national unity or a GNU, which seems to be the kind of like phrase that people have been using the most to stop a no deal Brexit by extending Article 50 so there could be an election slash a referendum slash another extension when Parliament decides and it hates all of the possible resolutions to Brexit. Right, okay. <laughs> it's not exactly a fun summer silly story, is it? <laughs> so it's odd because I, I th- I've gone through, there was a stage when I was very much in a kind of where it, the, the whole thing was annoying me so much that I was literally in a kind of like, I just need to find a paper bag and scream into it kind of stage. Yeah. And now I actually, to be honest, do find it quite funny. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some kind of... Do gnus bury their heads in the sand like ostriches? Because that's like the only image that's really in my head now. I mean, um, and it's very appropriate because like you, and I know it's quite boring when we agree on things, but it sounds utterly ridiculous to me how you could have a national unity government when the one thing defining the government in the Brexit era is a lack of unity. So I kind of talk through my kind of stages of grief while you were away. (laughs) I'm sad I wasn't here to witness this. So the bag stage, I think, was... And I'm aware that I'm saying this in very much biting the hand that feeds, right? But there is a chunk of Remainers who, I'm honestly astonished, don't spend all of their time buying bridges. There's just something about, like, kind of Remain political organising, particularly online, that just seems to encourage people to gravitate around inherently implausible ideas right Mm -hmm. so first it was this idea that the Labour Party had a secret plan to stop Brexit then it was like weirdly I kind of feel like a lot of those Remainers have ended up in the right position vis-a-vis Labour but their journey to get it is based on this strange idea that Labour has a button it could press and not on any of the actual things Labour has actually done that they might be annoyed by and then that same group of people has kind of seized on this idea of a government of national unity. And in each one of these ideas has in common that someone kind of has sort of semi-mooted them in a kind of like, let's take these people for a ride. And then like, 
it kind of enters the Remain ecosystem and it just won't leave. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's just something deeply maddening also about this way that you can only get Remainers to accept that a plan is implausible when they will use it to argue in favour of another implausible plan. You know, this kind of like, okay, I accept that a government of national unity is unlikely, but it's less unlikely than the Conservatives providing the majority for a referendum. And it's just like... (laughs) I mean, that's true, but only in the same sense that it is more implausible that I will uh, die by being sucked into a black hole than it is than I will die by being exposed to the vacuum of space. Both of those things are so, so unlikely, unlikely in happen. terms of the context of, you know, my profession, my life, <laughs> my income, etc., etc. You know, so that was kind of the paper bag stage. Why right. is this ridiculous idea being taken remotely seriously? Then, I guess the bags thing really accelerated, actually, when... So the beginning of the government of national unity was during the Liberal Democrat leadership yeah. election. It was a way for supporters of Ed Davey to go, oh, you know, we might be called upon to be in this government of national unity. You know, it would be really important if the leader of the Liberal Democrats had been a secretary of state. Hands up if you've been a secretary of state. <laughs> yeah. Not hands, you, Joe. Hands Keep up your hands down. Hands up got one thing different and slightly better than <laughs> yeah. our rival. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, you know, like kind of this desperate search for differentiation. In the, in the, um, and obviously it was a, a silly idea then and it visibly did not have the desired effect. Mm. But I do, I forgive that idea slightly of the Lib Dems because they have to say silly ideas to get headlines, right? They have to say a few mad things so that people pay attention to them. I'll just slip that in there. I I think in an odd way, actually, all of the things that various political parties have said about the government of national unity, I'm entirely forgiving of, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like Caroline Lucas going, oh, you know, my plan for a government of national unity is a government of national unity, but all of the protagonists are women. Like, yeah, it it doesn't change the fundamental problem, which is that you cannot put that combination of MPs together. Yeah, like it's like an it's an impossible it's like a weird maths puzzle where you whatever happens you cannot get the values to sum to 325 mm. it then and going well what if they're all women doesn't change the basic problem of getting the numbers to add up to 325 yeah but like fair play it's yeah. in the same way that you know jeremy corbyn's letter going oh well actually i'm happy to, to head a caretaker administration was purely about taking a stick that was being used to beat him and using it to beat other people. Yeah. I kind of think I have absolutely no problem with political parties behaving in a way that puts their political interests first. I guess the kind of, in the bag stage, yeah. um, the two sources of mine need to scream in a bag. Well, one, then it, that it works, right? The BBC put Caroline Lucas's call for a government of national unity of all women on its, on its homepage. This is on the most read news site. <laughs> in the United Kingdom, and it took until the ninth paragraph before it it was criticised, and, critis- and the criticism was Liz Truss going, isn't this a bit sexist? It's just like, now... <laughs> that is not... Of all the criticism... Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's just like, it literally, like, it would like... It's just one of the things, just like, isn't the bigger thing that the BBC should have <laughs> arguably informed its readers of some time ago that... This has no chance of happening. <laughs> you know, like... No, the problem is the underrepresentation of white middle-aged men at the top of politics. Yeah, it's just like one of those things where it's like it was genuinely easier to find out than, than Caroline Lucas's idea had been criticised from the right on the grounds of its <sighs> lack of men, from the left on the grounds of its lack of diversity. I'm not saying that those two criticisms are necessarily completely... F- well, no, they are completely flawed <laughs> in the same way that, you know, 
If I said, oh, I'm planning to turn my spare room into a multicolored jacuzzi, there might be reasons to oppose that, but I also don't have a spare room. <laughs> like, you know, like the, yeah. the central conceit is fundamentally not worth anyone's time or energy. And I think that was the point when I was just like, I cannot believe that our national broadcaster, which has a huge role in our, you know, in our political discourse, in our media ecosystem, has decided that, that it is going to put this proposal front and centre and treat it as if, considering, you know, and kind of looking ahead in terms of, you know, what, what you'll be telling us about in the sec- next segment, I just think in terms of what might happen to the country on the 1st of November, I do have serious objections to the complete failure of a large chunk of our political media, i.e. The, the BBC, to remotely prepare people for the idea that that might happen. It literally would be like if the coverage during the financial crisis was like, what does this mean for Gordon Brown's ability to hold off James Purnell? Like, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like there's probably a more important... Impl- you know, like They don't even necessarily need to be things which might happen. The other thing which was causing me in my kind of, oh my God, I need this paper bag stage, mm-hmm. was just the madness of the fact that when it was being used as a stick to beat Corbyn with, a bunch of people correctly were going, come on guys, the numbers for this cannot be made to add up with any leaders. Are you having a bubble? And then watching those same people literally in real time start going, oh, well, you know, Joe Swinson saying that it won't ever work and that the, the num- <laughs> this is a ridiculous proposal is being, is being ridiculous. And it's just like one of those things where it's just like, guys... I, you can't think I, you, both of yeah, those these, things at you, the same you time. You cannot possibly... I mean, okay, obviously people, people can convince themselves of partisan things all the time, but just... For some reason, it really got to me, but then it just became hilarious to me. <laughs> right? Like, like we we are seventy five or however many days it is from leaving the European Union without a deal, and a large number of people are seriously arguing about whether or not you know they could form a government, but they don't have the votes. But if a friend of a friend does, you know, and they're all just based on ludicrous premises, right? Like the eleven people who have left the Labour Party because they do not believe Jeremy Corbyn should be Prime Minister, particularly important on this issue for national security reasons, are going to yeah. go, yes, I'm happy for him to, to chair the National Security Council for six weeks. <laughs> Why not? That's definitely going to be my last act before I'm defeated in an election. <laughs> um, yeah, the idea that uh, the leader of the Labour Party is going to go, why, yes, I do want to kick off an election by announcing to our Leave voters that I think no-deal Brexit is terrible but 11 people who used to be in my own party think that I am even worse. (laughs) I mean, every point of it requires you to believe that someone is going to take stupid pills, right? There is literally no part of it as an idea that isn't hilariously demented. And that's why I'm now in this kind of like, wow. I I mean, people took the time to track down Ken Clark to find out if he wanted to be in the government. (laughs) Bigger picture, and goes back to what you were saying about the BBC. I think these kind of ideas are... a result of how lots of the Brexit, the mainstream Brexit coverage has been obsessed with personality throughout the whole thing. So I don't know about you, but when I speak to people behind the scenes who are more on the Remain side of things, usually they're obsessed with cherry picking the personalities that they would like to be in charge of Brexit or rather stopping Brexit. So, you know, someone who's quite high up a Remain sort of establishment Labour politician was saying, oh, you know, I'd have Hillary Benn here, Tom Watson here, Ken Clark here, you know, all of these characters. And it's like, how, first of all, what, what do you want them to be doing? How would you get them all together working in the same kind of 
party or system. And the obsession with personality is so irrelevant, particularly when Parliament is so sort of fractured, that I just that I think that obsession has culminated in this sort of dream kind of fantasy football type style of looking at government. Yeah, so Raphael Hogarth, you wrote a very good piece about how you could actually prevent no deal, i.e. legislation in prospect. I originally talk about it and he said you can you can audibly hear the sigh of relief from large chunks of Fleet Street and Westminster whenever the conversation moves away from Brexit policy and legislative options towards what if What's Yvette Cooper doing? Yeah. I, I know I've said this before, but I continue to be hugely fascinated by effectively the fictional character of Yvette Cooper in <laughs> in like Romain mythology, right? This is someone who has not said that they are pro referendum, who likened opposing triggering Article fifty to being like Donald Trump. You know, who has consistently like it is it is essentially impossible to sustain the argument that her Brexit position is qualitatively different from Jeremy Corbyn's, right? She'll talk up slightly different aspects of it, you know, like free movement, mm. uh, you know, and why it needs to end, or whereas Jeremy Corbyn is more likely to talk about the European court. Yet it's not like Yvette Cooper is herself doing anything to trick these people, right? It, it feels essentially identical to, again, this same group of people, the level of hope they would mm. invest in Jeremy Corbyn when he'd give a speech being like, I think that we would do Brexit better there was a referendum and like a bunch of like people would go actually I think what you don't understand is that he is really into stopping Brexit and that same group of people are now doing the exact same thing to Yvette Cooper and I feel like if we could understand and again I know we've said this before but like if you were to pick a member of the parliamentary party at random you would have more chance of picking someone who wants to stop Brexit and has voted to stop Brexit Mm. than this weird cosplaying of let's have a government and I'm going to somehow manage to na- consistently name politicians. What is this? Is, is it some weird kink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this, yeah. like where does it come from? This the naming w- of the politicians. Yeah, and it's like, just like this thing where, like, you know, I mean, yeah, the, the whole thing is, is just entertainingly crazy. Of course, the problem is, is that we are still 79 days from no deal, which will be the, sec- the topic of our next segment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Indeed. This is a kind of question that lots of people are asking, including myself, which is basically like, what would No Deal look like? Anoush, you've been heading up our Know Your No Deal section. So yeah, what what does happen if 
we do leave on the 31st of October without a deal. Okay, well, yeah, we've been running this series. You can find it online. It's called Know Your No Deal. And it's basically asking how will no deal Brexit affect our lives and all the different areas. So the common questions that we've been asked are, you know, will there be medicine shortages? Will there be food shortages? What will happen to the pound? What will happen to the economy? But we also have other really interesting pieces like does the public actually want a no deal Brexit? So you often get Brexiteer politicians or politicians who represent leave seats saying everyone wants a a no deal Brexit. Actually, Joe Twyman, the, the pollster, has debunked that slightly, although there's not much enthusiasm on any other alternative as, as well. So that's worth a read. And we've also had a piece about how potentially bans will be put off coming to play in the UK and vice versa. UK bans going to play in European countries because in particular, it makes it difficult for them to transport their instruments. And we've also got a a great piece about how the culture of our diets could change and we could go back to a more sort of English diet, which um, is actually quite a terrifying piece if you want to have a read. Ultimately, the baseline of all of the pieces is that it's really difficult to tell how things will be affected because we're not sure how much businesses are actually following the government's guidance for creating contingency plans. And we're not sure how far the government's contingency plans are actually adequate. I mean, all the reporting recently has shown probably not adequate at all. Most recently, I've been working on a piece with someone who's a heart transplant patient and he's terrified of no deal because the drugs that he takes, if he misses them, he dies because his body starts rejecting his heart. So he's very concerned, obviously, about that. And he hasn't had a single message from the government, the NHS, his GP, his consultants about whether or not medication like his will be affected. So that's something that we've been working on speaking to the Department of Health about about that issue. So that's really worth a read. That's coming out this week. And in terms of other pieces, I mean, the ones about the economy are probably the ones which which are the least clear, actually. So we've had quite a few economists look at the issue for us. And the big debate is is that similar for businesses is how much a weaker pound, the positives of a weaker pound for a business that that is exporting will outweigh the negatives of what's going on back in the UK and the cost of importing things and also what happens to their labour force as well. So unfortunately, it's not a very easy question to answer, but no matter, you know, whether you're for or against, it is going to profoundly change the country. Yeah, so so basically the kind of essential problem, right, is that you leave and you drop out of the regulatory and trading sort of architecture that the United Kingdom has existed in for 40 years and... There is then immediate disruption and it's not clear what the immediate effects of that disruption are. Exactly. Yeah, it's not clear what what those effects are. I mean, we're doing um, a series within this series speaking to business owners who are telling them their sort of Brexit diaries. How much are they actually preparing for no deal? How much are they taking it seriously? How far can they actually even if they want to prepare? And, you know, the people that we've spoken to so far, while they did stock vaguely stockpile in a lacklustre way before March some of their products or their raw materials that they needed they just used them immediately after the deadline was extended so that's making it a little bit difficult to take this new October the 31st deadline seriously because it costs money to do that and if you're a small business with tight margins and you know very tight cash flow then you can't afford to keep doing that and I think that's that's one of the biggest problems because the government's basically leaning on business to to prepare. Yeah, I think like one of the things that so the thing I find interesting about that is when you speak to people in Whitehall and you go like, well, what would it look like? The thing they always say is, well, we don't know because we don't know whether or not there will be consumer panic. Yeah, 
Yeah, they're like, we don't have any lever that we can pull to compel businesses because the way you'd compel businesses is through legislation. And if you had legislation to compel businesses, then Parliament <laughs> yeah. would have an opportunity to go, yeah, don't. Don't do that. Don't do no deal. But they were saying the other problem is and basically they have kind of like two globs of people who, who won't prepare who can. The ones who are like, that's really expensive. None of our competitors are doing it. And we think Dominic Grieve will stop it. Yeah. And another glob who go... Yeah, I think it's all Project Fear, it'll be fine. And of course, there is no message for both of those groups. But if either of them continues to just be like, we think it'll be fine, we don't have a no-deal contingency plan, then of course that is another kind of known unknown. Well, you've hit, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head of the problem. It's a dilemma, really, for the government. Because on the one hand, you know, every time you go to a government department for comment, they'll be like... It's all in train. It will all be fine. Things will carry on as usual. This is our plan. But because they're saying that, businesses, like you say, are thinking, oh, it's all project fear. Actually, it's going to be fine. Or they just feel comforted by what the government's saying. And so those two things at the same time mean that you're not getting the outcome that you want from people preparing. So I found this in the piece that I wrote about medical supplies and medicines. So one of the major problems will be medicines getting through but one of the biggest problems there is is the panic is people stockpiling people are already starting to panic and stockpile and pharmacies are running low on on supplies that's you know that's one of the biggest issues there and so if the government wants to try and comfort them and say no no please don't panic but at the same time it's telling pharmaceutical companies to stockpile so you know those two things are contradictory and could result in the worst possible scenario which is people panicking yeah yeah kind of one of the sort of kind of conversations yeah that kind of like at a westminster end and kind of keep happening is yeah well who will be blamed and mm. my underlying assumption which is you know like is i although i kind of accept you know intellectually then it's plausible then there's you know some there's some blame that goes around for everyone i kind of just feel like governments get blamed for so much stuff which isn't their fault i mean like the interrail thing which was purely a quango going well we've decided to have a ridiculous show of strength and the second that an elected politician got involved at all it was to go whoa no 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 you have to reverse this decision which is has is really bad for the tourism industry outside of london yeah you know, you are going to u-turn today but the government still got blamed for that very short-lived opting out of interrailing not for people in the uk to use but for people coming to the uk to use which is why it was so particularly angering to british tourism because that means essentially then someone on an interrail pass goes, okay, well, I'll come to London, but if my interrail train is not included you know, in my train to York, well, I'm not going to the Rail Museum, I'm not going to et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The government got blamed for that, which wasn't their fault, and they fixed in a, in a matter of hours. Mm. I just find the idea that if any of this bad stuff actually happens, people are going to go, oh, actually, I have a complex view about Corbyn's open letter and the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the gif that Joe Swinson tweeted in response. I just, I just don't buy it. Mm. Yeah, I don't buy it. I think, obviously, the government will try and position the EU as the villains if no deal is dis as disastrous as we think that it will be. How likely do you think it will be able to cast them as the villains? I don't think so, because we will have left by then. And that some of the consequences, lots of the most disastrous consequences will be short term, but some of them will carry on into the long term. And that's when the government will really suffer. I can't think one, I think I'm always struck by the fact and I think there's actually quite a large number of people who who kind of basically expect the eu to look after their people and its end of the negotiation mm. they believe that the government can stand up to the eu 
yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, I kind of think actually like the the government already has a problem with unreasonable expectations, which it itself has also stoked up, that it is encouraging people to believe that our trade negotiations with the EU and indeed with the US will be engaged on as equals, right? Like there's this kind of like inability to go, look, you can have the regulatory freedoms of a Canada, but that also means that you negotiate with the weaknesses of a Canada-sized yeah. economic unit. There is an inherent trade-off there. I kind of just think basically people will they like although they might say well i blame the eu and the government well they can't vote against the the eu exactly uh, we won't be in it anymore i mean like that also how can you cast yourself as a villain and as plucky optimistic britain at the same time you know it's one or the other yeah and i think that's like the weird structural problem here right is that the government has done so much building up of expectations and i can't really work out how like it's it's no deal message is basically like don't worry we're working hard on it politicians don't get to cancel the votes and they don't like and then like people are all gloomsters and you're just like okay but which which one of those lines are you planning to use if on day two there's like a you know a riot on a you know a traffic jam right yeah yeah. that's the other like yeah like so yeah is traffic one of the what will happen at ports yeah yeah i mean that's one of the that's one of the big questions and also yeah that will be one of the most sort of immediate flashpoints so this has been a cheerful conversation yeah I'm now joined by Emily Bootle, who usually sits here and winces at Stephen and my conversation for half an hour each week recording our (laughs) podcast. But um, she's written a very good piece about the comedy panel show and whether it's had its day. So why did you decide to write on this topic, first of all? So I decided to write about this because I basically got sick of flicking through channels after work and finding endless reruns of QI on Dave and... (laughs) just thinking about how when I was growing up the panel show seemed like the peak of comedy yeah um, and I felt like it it's had its day as the headline says <laughs> um so I thought I'd kind of look into it and see if it actually has had its day and it seems it hasn't so that was an interesting <laughs> that's interesting because I do think there's a tendency now particularly in sort of the current climate which everyone always uses to refer to to what we're going through that it, like it's impossible to have political satire anymore because mm. everything's so sort of apocalyptic and unbelievable anyway yeah and I think we've run actually a piece by Armando Iannucci saying that before um, yeah. at the New Statesman so like the idea of having a political sort of banter show like have I got news for you? It seems kind of passe, especially when all the jokes are made on Twitter that day. Exactly. Well, the Twitter thing is really interesting because again, I think for me, I I felt that a lot of these takes were just happening in real time on Twitter. So Mm. the idea of having half an hour every week dedicated to analysing the news just seems a little bit dated in a way because, you know, some of the stuff will have happened five days ago. Yeah. But actually, I think that might be symptomatic of me and lots of the people that I know being in a bit of a bubble where we're on Twitter all the time (laughs) Um, and actually I interviewed Ian Hislop for the piece who had a lot of thoughts about it and he was kind of like most people aren't on Twitter all day yeah and also most people on Twitter aren't that funny Um, (laughs) don't have don't have a particularly clever take compared to some of the people on panel shows but but the other thing about the internet is that it supposedly gives people an equal platform to have those takes whereas panel shows are famously very 
undiverse. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was the other thing that the piece was kind of talking so about. So do they remain undiverse then? Yeah, they they are kind of shockingly undiverse, actually. So there was um, somebody's put together a, a list of the gender percentage breakdowns for panel shows and the worst one is i'm sorry i haven't a clue on radio 4 right um, okay which the all-time appearances so including regulars and hosts only 3.6 percent have been women wow which is i just thought that was unbelievable and then even think so qi is hosted by sandy toxvig who is mm. a woman and that's still only 19.8 percent of all-time appearances being women which I think is quite shocking for a format that ostensibly is supposed to be about giving lots of people an opportunity to have their say. You know, that's that's the point of a panel show. It's mm. it's a panel. Yeah, exactly. Especially as panel shows are supposed to kind of be sort of popping the balloon of the establishment yeah, kind of thing. If exactly. they just reflect the establishment, yeah. that's quite yeah. ironic. Exactly. And yeah, I guess the other thing that I talked about in the piece is the idea of reflecting the establishment because Have I Got News For You has political figures or politicians on quite a lot. And recently, since Boris Johnson sort of entered the Conservative leadership election, there's been quite a lot of criticism directed at Have I Got News For You because he's hosted it a few times. And so, yeah, that's kind of interesting in terms of how relevant they are because they they do have some sway in the public's perception of things. Yeah. Because Boris Johnson was, even though Ian Hislop says he criticised him and he's not a fan of Boris Johnson, he was still given this platform with entertainers. He was kind of amongst the banter just by nature of what the what the programme is like. Mm. And so... And you're allowed to sort of, from knowing people who have gone on that show, you're allowed to sort of take the time to come up with your own jokes before yeah, you go on. So. Yeah, exactly. So there's there have been a lot of people who have said that Have I Got News For You really propelled Boris Johnson's career. Mm. And, and what was Ian Hislop's response to that? When well, you... Ian Hislop just said that he tried to criticise Boris Johnson when he was on the programme. And, that you know, the idea of having politicians on Have I Got News For You is to critique them, I suppose, or question them. And I think Ian Hislop did that. And since Boris Johnson became mayor of London and his career grew, I think they've sort of maintained their criticism of him. But mm. the, the, the other thing is, how do you distinguish that as a viewer? How do you distinguish that criticism from all of the guests that they have on or the guest yeah. hosts that they have on? Because they're always poking fun at at yeah. them and they're poking fun at each other. So yeah. how do you dis- distinguish poking fun at Boris Johnson from poking fun at... yeah. Ian Hislop. Yeah, no. exactly. And I mean, but but also the other thing that Ian Hislop said was you don't want to get into this situation where you can't have certain people on television because mm-hmm. because you don't agree with them. And I know that kind of gets into a bit of a dangerous free speech debate, but I guess he's got a point. You can't just get left-wing politicians on because that's the general stance of Have I Got News For You. You have mm. to... I hate to say you have to give Boris Johnson a chance, but you have to have some consistency. Yeah, okay. And so in terms of viewing and listening figures then, are these kind of shows still sort of... Yeah, so they still, I mean, they've gone down since sort of 10 years ago, like I said, but I think the approval ratings are still 
pretty high for them generally. Um, so my initial wanting to prove <laughs> their <laughs> <Thesis>. demise <laughs> um, didn't really yeah, come to fruition in the piece. But I think that's, yeah, that's interesting in itself, really. Well, what was interesting about watching Love Island this summer was the advert breaks. There were so many comedy panel shows advertised in those breaks. Yeah. <laughs> um, celebability and yeah. is there one called Hey Tracy? Or, yeah. yeah. So is there sort of like a proliferation of other panel shows, comedy panel shows that aren't quite in the same vein as, you know, the news quiz or have I got yeah. news for you? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think there's always that gap to fill, right, mm. of just totally absurd humour with sort of Z-less celebrities. But, you know, in a way, things like celebrity are, are okay in that normally we see these people on Instagram living idealistic lives and it's kind of quite good to see them not take themselves so seriously yeah once in a while and yeah it's I mean it's it's kind of interesting that the panel show has so many different iterations as well as that quite as we've talked about influential political stuff it's got the just completely irrelevant nonsense of like Scarlett Moffat I don't know like <laughs> pouring water on her own head or something <laughs> um, I know yeah. which I'd rather watch yeah <laughs> So what was the conclusion of your piece then? I think the conclusion of the piece is just they do still have relevance. They do still have popularity. And so it's it's even more important that the comedy industry makes an effort to get more diverse voices in there and mm. use the panel format to its maximum potential, basically. And, you know, TV channels are doing that. The BBC several years ago banned all-male panels. Mm. ITV has recently banned all-male writers' rooms. So, you know, and, and Ian Hislop... Um, talked about how they're sort of they do everything they can to try and diversify so you know there is some effort being made but I think the the take home is just that they're still on tv so they need to be up to date thanks so much and great piece oh, everyone should me. read it who's <laughs> listening to this segment you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush we're recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. And our music is Devil by the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.